So let's read from this most precious book, one of God's beautiful gifts, 2, verse 1 to 17. And when he, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no, no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Yeah, no worries. Uh, good morning, everyone. Great to see you here. Thanks, uh, Inika, and welcome back uh, to you and Bill understand you've been abroad, so back on the cruise ship last night, uh, you can ask them about that afterwards. Uh, so we're on a gospel adventure uh, together, it's part of the greatest story where all of our stories find their place uh, and that's my story and your story. Isn't it amazing how God interweaves our stories together and Mark's gospel is part of that uh, big story, that big 66-book uh, story, uh, and his first chapter is a bridge that fits the old story together with the new. And so there's a profound theological idea that's being revealed here, uh, the Old Testament covenant curses that came upon a disobedient and faithless Israel uh, are being lifted 
through the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah. God's covenant blessings are coming through his one and only son, the true Israel, the true and faithful servant of the Lord, so that all nations will be blessed. The world is making way for the new, and what we're seeing is a foretaste of a time when God will restore all things, just as he's always promised. Jesus has gone viral. Crowds gather both in the city and in the country. Everyone is seeking him out, and he's delivered spiritually and physically. Uh, the crowds even in Mark chapter 2, and it'd be great if you can have your Bible open there in front of you. Grab one, follow along with the person next door, uh, use your phone, uh, do whatever you can to, uh, to look at God's word as we look at this together. So we'll tackle this in uh, two sections, and then we'll finish today with some application as our third point uh, woven into this. So firstly, the heart of the gospel. Uh, we looked last week at the issue of the king's authority, Jesus' authority over all realms of life, and his miracles are amazing, and there's lots of them in Mark's gospel, but the miracles are not the point. They are the pointers. They confirm Jesus' message, and they help us understand who he is and what he's on about. And so the next snapshot might have, have you really questioning what priorities Jesus has. Imagine the expectation in this house, on this day, in Capernaum. It's Jesus at home, uh, at least it's the temporary share house uh, during Galilee, and we need to picture the scene. So have a look at verse 2. Many were gathered uh, so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So Mark is showing us that that is what Jesus has come to do, to preach the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. And Jesus is, what he came, is doing what he came to do. And the crowd is too much for these four faithful men who are carrying a paralysed friend with them in verse 3. And when they can't get near Jesus, they resort to some drastic action, even removing the roof itself. More literally, it says they unroofed the roof. Uh, I was on the roof of the local primary school uh, last weekend at the working bee, and I went up there to check the gutters uh, because they seemed part of the gardening uh, in that building. Uh, and I can tell you, I wouldn't have had to do much to that roof uh, to go through and lower someone in. Uh, so I quickly decided it perhaps wasn't a good idea to be up there, and I used a ladder instead. Uh, but with this first century house, uh, we've got a, a graphic here, they would have gone up the stairs and onto the roof. Uh, most houses were just single storey, and the, the roof uh, was where they would, they would eat and they would have fresh air, a bit like the equivalent of a deck in our houses today. Uh, it's on the sermon outline, so you can spin the house around and see it in 3D. That fascinated me. Uh, the roof would have been about two foot thick, so reasonably thick, uh, compacted soil, uh, and even like a hard clay that was sitting on top of timber and sticks and reeds. And we know that from archaeology. And there was a house found underneath a 4th century church, and it's believed to be a section of Peter's house uh, right next to the shoreline uh, for the fishing and right near the synagogue. 
So it's in the right location. It's absolutely fascinating. But just imagine the bedlam in the house as these guys make the opening, sticks and, fall, and dirt are falling down on top, let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So that's an amazing picture, isn't it? Suddenly there's light streaming in, the new skylight in the roof, and down comes this man on his stretcher bed right in front of Jesus, the prince and the paralytic. And verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And how intriguing is that? Because isn't everyone expecting him to be healed? What are you talking about, Jesus? Surely you would heal him. What is going on with this? And it comes as quite a shock. And we need to see here that his compassion is far deeper than what we might first really understand and a bleaker problem than his physical ailment. So the external is obvious, the internal isn't. And so his great need is profound and it's a need that you or I share as well. The forgiveness of sins is fundamentally your greatest need. And our biggest problem isn't the cost of living or the rise in interest rates. It's a broken relationship with God. And without forgiveness, there can be no restoration. And you will remain under God's judgment. The Bible makes that clear. We live in his world as if he didn't exist. And we don't reference him at all. Our sin means we have committed cosmic treason against this one true and living God. And we live for ourselves instead. We don't just need our garden tidied up a bit, the gutters cleaned, or a few weeds pulled out. We need fundamental renovation from the inside out, a regeneration. We need our sin dealt with by him who paid the price for it. So while this man is it's really unfortunate, isn't it? He's defined by his condition, the paralytic. Uh, the Bible is clear that you and I are also defined by our condition. We are sinners in need of a saviour and we are paralysed by our sin and we need this great healing that only Jesus can provide us. Uh, so let's ask, what about faith in, in what happens here? Was it saving faith that these men demonstrated? And it appears like the faith Jesus sees is the faith of these friends... But I think it's also the faith of the paralysed guy along with them because he would have to agree <laughs> to go through all that they did for him. Otherwise, he would have been spitting <laughs> and complaining all the way. I think he too wanted to come to Jesus. But it's ultimately not about them and their faith. It's the object of their faith. It's who they put their faith in. And they sought Jesus for healing. And they really did believe that Jesus could heal. It was courageous and creative and costly because someone would have to fix the roof afterwards. But what they got was just a far greater result than what they really expected and what they thought possible. And at this point in his ministry, we're a long way from the cross and not everyone sees Jesus for who he truly is. And that's especially true of the scribes of the Pharisees. Uh, because they sit there accusing Jesus of blasphemy. 
there in verse 7. Uh, they are the Bible scholars of the day, uh, the Bible lecturers from the local college, uh, the religious lawyers, and the question on their minds is this, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now that is the right question, but their conclusion is wrong. Their logic is right. Think about this, that God alone can forgive sins. Jesus claims to forgive sins. Therefore, Jesus is claiming to be God. Absolutely, that logic is right. But the claim that he's blaspheming, they don't understand who he is. So the first proof to who Jesus is, his deity here, is in knowing what they are thinking. Did you notice that? Verse 8. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned like that within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? And that's picking up this Old Testament idea that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He looks within. And Jesus is doing that. God sees him with Jesus. And the second proof is Jesus' healing that proves his authority to forgive sins. So he says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. His point is not there that one is easier to do, uh, but one is easier to... Uh, because you can't necessarily prove that, can you? Uh, you? You couldn't really know if he just left it at that, but he didn't. Verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he does. It's phenomenal. The Son of Man as well. Uh, that's his preferred title for himself. And it's the first time he uses it. Uh, the Son of Man is uh, spoken of in Daniel chapter 7. And it's a really good idea to have that passage in mind whenever Jesus uses that term. Uh, because to him was given authority or dominion and glory and a kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting one that will not pass away. So that is linked with his supreme authority. It's not really true to say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Absolutely he claimed to be God. And he claims that authority over your life and my life. It is supreme. And it's at the heart of the gospel. And if you ask this paralysed man today what mattered most to him, I think he'd probably say, well, the healing of his legs was amazing and wonderful, but the forgiveness of his sins meant that he was with Jesus for eternity, even now. So it's, it's like no comparison, isn't it? The heart of the gospel is the forgiveness of sins. It is more important than physical healing. And that might be really difficult to get your head around, but it's absolutely what's being demonstrated to us here. Physical healing is great, uh, but our healing spiritually is more important. And only Jesus can make it possible because of who he is. So, he welcomes sinners and not the self-righteous. That's the next little uh, part of the story. We'll meet Levi, the son of Alphaeus, uh, also known as Matthew, the tax collector. 
And there's a difference between the crowds who come to Jesus and the disciples who follow Jesus. The crowds come and go, but a disciple sticks with him. And he teaches the crowds, but he calls his disciples. And this one is quite surprising. And it's a surprisingly short summary for someone who would become such an important disciple. Uh, Verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And that is surprising too, because tax collectors were hated in Israel. And this isn't the equivalent of someone who works for the ATO. I've got a friend in Sydney who works for the ATO, and I need to say, great guy, and he looks after people. Uh, But at this time, tax collectors were considered national and religious traitors. And we need to imagine, perhaps an equivalent would be a Ukrainian who is collecting taxes for the Russians in occupied territory and making a profit out of it. That of murderers, and Jewish law ruled them unclean, unrighteous, unwanted at their synagogues, and unwelcome in the community at large. So Levi is one of them, and he sits at his tax booth with the accounts open, you know, receipts piled up, and his pen in his hand when Jesus calls him, and it has immediate effect. He arose, went forth, and followed him. That is the power of Jesus' ability to call you and me as well. Uh, He is a great sinner, but Jesus doesn't run away from that. He runs towards him. A tax collector is probably the most obvious example of a sinner for that day. And Jesus did that as well. That is the scandal of grace. Uh, And so verse 15, uh, this is actually a picture of the church. So have a look. As he reclined... At his table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. That is the company of sinners brought together around the gospel to Jesus. Uh, And to to recline at the table meant to eat with someone. Uh, The table was low uh, and you would lay beside it. And that kind of meant to open yourself up to a relationship with that person invited So the fellowship of sinners is gathered together by Jesus as he eats with them. And if you look around you uh, to your brothers and sisters in Christ, that is the church. Not perfect people, uh, not even good enough people who've just scraped through. They are sinners just like you and me. And if you have a concept of church as being only for good people, then you're making the same mistake as these scribes do. So verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he do that? And when Jesus heard, he said to them, those who have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's not saying that there are some people who are righteous and so don't need a saviour. What he's doing here is just using the Pharisees' understanding against them. And they think Jesus is unclean and sick by association with such people. But instead, Jesus is the spiritual doctor who was able to restore them and minister to them where they hadn't done that. 
They hadn't reached out to the tax collector to include them in God's family, to reach out to them with the hope that was there. They couldn't read their scriptures to understand that and see Jesus for who he really was. Jesus has authority to forgive sins, so he can eat with forgiven sinners. And he teaches with authority. He has authority to heal. He has authority to deliver and authority to call his followers to himself. And the scribes just cannot understand that because they are playing in the wrong direction. Uh, This is Jim Marshall, who played for the uh, Minnesota Vikings in the NFL. Uh, And regrettably, he is famous for a huge mistake. It's one of those top ten worst plays of all time in all sports. Uh, He scooped up the loose ball and ran in entirely the wrong direction, all the way to the end zone, and it's a really painful 10 seconds or so, as he runs down there completely unopposed, the, uh, the crowd is yelling at him to stop and he's just oblivious, and then he celebrates all on his own down there, uh, and it's actually a touchdown for the other team. Well, I think it's two points to the other team. Yeah, people are nodding their heads. And, and then the other side gets possession as well. It's a disaster, uh, and that is the mindset of the Pharisees. They think they're scoring points for the kingdom team and instead uh, they are headed in the wrong direction. They are the phony legalists with no understanding of grace or the Lord Jesus. They are self-righteous. They're on a collision course with the gospel and with Jesus throughout his ministry and they don't think they need forgiveness and they trust in themselves And can I say, if that is you, that is a really perilous position to be in, to ignore the only saviour that there is and claim to be healthy when you're not and to place yourself yourself at odds with your creator. You are going in the wrong direction. Warning about that kind of arrogance. If you think you don't need Jesus, then you are no better than the Pharisee. And Jesus welcomes those who cannot help themselves and the self-righteous will find themselves shut out of God's kingdom permanently. So praise God that Jesus saved friend to sinners. We're going to spend a moment in some application uh, with head, heart and hands. That's what that looks like. Mark's gospel is sometimes pretty underrated and we tend to go elsewhere for doctrine or application, uh, perhaps you know, Paul's letters later in the New Testament. But we need to us. It's equipping us for the Christian life and there are deep truths here uh, to mind, powerful theological truths proclaiming the nature and work of Jesus, all about the gospel being central and what the heart of the gospel is. Uh, This is teaching us to be Christ-centred. It's teaching us that the the gospel transforms lives and it changes people's uh, direction uh, to follow in the kingdom direction. And it is meant to encourage and confront and convict our waywardness, our stubbornness. Uh, That's along with some pretty practical outcomes as well. So with head, heart and hands, we're thinking about how does this apply to my life today? This is the now. All right, so we've seen already, you and I are just like this paralysed man. 
We need to know the forgiveness of sins that's made possible by Jesus' authority to grant that. And so I would ask you the question, are you forgiven? Have you responded to Jesus in your life? And have you seen the seriousness of your sin that led Jesus to come and die for that, for you? Are you recognising your need each and every day for the Lord Jesus? Uh, The Apostle Paul uh, said in 1 Timothy that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, (laughs) I am the worst. That's Paul, and that is the gospel to be preached to yourself. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of those. Don't make the mistake of the Pharisees and overlook what Jesus is offering you and what he does in people's lives. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you're any different to the sinners and tax collectors of Jesus' day because the Bible says no one is righteous and we all need him. So the religious leaders needed to see their own need to come to him in humility, not with judgment and scorn. So check your heart. Are you trusting in yourself or in his word? Is your story connected to his? Uh, Are you thinking that you'll be okay with your own works uh, only uh, by his work of redemption on your behalf? Is the other way of thinking. Uh, There's... This warning here, beware the the legalistic heart of the Pharisee that questions Jesus, that thinks it knows better than Jesus, and rejects Jesus' followers, and it throws up the drawbridge in judging them as outsiders. That is trusting in yourself, and there's a much better way. So we're thinking about how is this helpful to the core business of, of the work of this church, Uh, The leadership team has a planning session next Saturday, a stop take, uh, checking where we're at and and where we need to be. And we need to be asking, is the gospel core to what we do? Is the forgiveness of sins the heart of that message? And how can we put the gospel front and centre as a church? So please be in prayer for uh, Saturday morning as we look at that. How can you respond with action? It may, but may not be with your hands as such, perhaps with your mouth, with your language. Is sin part of your gospel presentation? Or do you actually shy away from that word itself? Because this says sin is actually fundamental to the presentation of the gospel. Will you pray that he will convict them of their need for forgiveness for their sin? And we need to be praying for God's spirit to convert people on his terms, for them to see their great need and the peril that they're in without him, so that they flee into the arms of Jesus. Uh, Some here might be looking for an opportunity when you can show hospitality, and so you can be ready to boldly share your faith uh, with your friends from work or your family or colleagues. Uh, If you're new like me... Uh, well, then there might be a practical way of connecting with sinners and tax collectors by becoming a partner at this church. Uh, that would be a great option to get in board, on, on board. Invest your life and your gifts and your money and your time into kingdom business and be part of the team. And so 
If it's you, you know, please stop standing in the doorway and come in, get involved. Uh, we probably all know someone who needs Jesus, and I wonder if you could get together with some other people and, and pray about that together as a team. And maybe you can think about a way to get to get Jesus uh, in their life somehow, like the friends of this, this paralysed man did. Uh, you and I are not the Holy Spirit, but we can do all we can to introduce someone to Jesus. We can do our best to climb the stairs, remove the obstacle, take the roof off and lower them to Jesus. And so maybe you need to ask yourself, how can I act with courage, with creativity and with costly gospel-hearted conviction on behalf of someone else in my life? Because it did come at a cost, didn't it? Because someone would have had to fix the roof. But it was important. And so that was an, that's an investment. So finally, how is your understanding of suffering and its place in God's plans in your life? Because there was a moment for that paralysed man where he was forgiven but not yet healed. And his healing was pointing to a greater reality. So have a listen to J.C. Ryle. Uh, He comments on the blessedness of the paralysed man's brokenness. So he says this, Who can doubt that to the end of his days this man would thank God for his paralysis? Without it, he would probably have lived and died in ignorance and never seen Christ at all. Without it, he might have kept his sheep on green hills of Galilee all his life long and never been brought to Christ and never heard this blessed word, your sins are forgiven. That paralysis was indeed a blessing. Who can tell, but it was the beginning of eternal life for his soul. Friends, let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, what a friend we have in you. We praise you uh, that we, you call followers to yourself, uh, just like the people next to us here today. And you do that by your word of power. We thank you that you are gathering a people to yourself through every age, a great fellowship of sinners saved by grace. How amazing, how wonderful. Father, we pray for those we know who don't yet know Jesus, uh, who need to come to him and find forgiveness. Lord, help us to play our part in that work, uh, to share the gospel and to bring them by whatever means necessary uh, as your spirit works within us. Give us creativity. Uh, Give us uh, conviction. Help us to be a people of the gospel putting that front and centre in our ministry together. Use us, we pray, in your kingdom work and for your glory. We ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.